Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. This is God's word for us today. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Will you pray with me? Father, again we pause simply to ask you, God, to do your work in our lives through your word for your glory. Work in us, change us, save us where we need it, and in all things, be magnified. That's our prayer in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. As we get older, we do funnier things. True or false? So I'm going to give you an example. The other day, I was searching frantically for my wedding ring. I was getting ready to leave the house for something. I had clearly taken it off because it wasn't there. And I looked in the bedroom. And it wasn't there. I looked on my desk. It wasn't there. My ring was nowhere to be found. I enlisted the aid of my children to speed up the search process. All to no avail. Frustrated, I decided I was going to have to leave the house without my ring. This is a thing I do not do. I have told my children before, my ring is important. My ring tells the ladies of Las Vegas to leave me alone. (laughs) So as I was getting ready to leave the house, I reached into my pocket to pull out my phone. It was then that my fingers touched... You guessed it. See, I had taken my ring off and slipped it into my pocket because I was doing some dishes. And my wife bought me an extra wide ring so that the ladies would really know. (laughs) And water can get under there. And so I've got to take my ring off to dry. Anyway, and there it was right there. So though I was searching and searching for my ring... It was with me the whole time. You know, sometimes Christians will think that we need God to give us something more than what God has already given us. We need something extra to make it through life. And so we pray for God to give us new gifts. 
new experiences, new promises to help us do what God has commanded that we do. But the truth is, God has already given you, if you are a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, everything you need to live a godly life with hope for eternity. And in our text for today, Paul's going to pray for the Christians in Ephesus. And at the heart of Paul's prayer for these believers is the fact that Paul knows they have what they need to succeed in their Christian lives. God has given them what they need for hope as they live in a hard world. And Paul's praying that they not allow themselves to think that they lack anything they need to be able to honor the Lord. So as we study the text today, this prayer for the church, we're going to learn a few things, friends, that mark faithful Christian living. But perhaps most importantly, you're going to see that God has given us everything we need to have hope and to honor Him in our Christian lives. We don't have to look for it. It's already with us. And God wants you to be encouraged today. And God wants you to be aware of glorious things that he's given you today. And God wants you to know that you have what you need. And God wants you to seek his wisdom, not to get something new, but to uncover the resources God has given his believers. So we're going to find three key points as we unpack what Paul prays for the Ephesian church. Now, the first point is actually something we learn from what Paul has heard about the Ephesians. And this kind of leads toward where we're going but it's worth making a point of. First point this morning, Christians, or maybe not even Christians, trust Jesus and love believers. Trust Jesus and love believers. By the way, how's that for a New Testament message? That could be the whole sermon and we could be done. We're not, though. For this reason, Paul says... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Now, verses 1 to 14, really, verses 3 to 14 of this chapter, Paul wrote a gigantic sentence. It's over 200 words long in the original language. Now, in an attempt from me to help you feel how long that sentence really is, I spent three weeks preaching through it. You're welcome. (laughs) And the running theme of the opening portion of this book is praising God for God's grace. And we saw praise for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We saw the working of God active in eternity past, in the present day, and giving us a sure hope for eternity future. And as that sentence reached its conclusion, Paul pointed to the glory of God and the fact that all people, regardless of your ethnicity, can be saved by God's grace for God's glory. And now we pick up the passage and Paul is going to let the Ephesians know that he prays for them and that he's grateful to God for them. And the, and the, and the opening phrase there, for this reason, he is, he's going to tell us why. Why is he thankful? Why is he praising God for these people? So the question should be, why are you thankful, Paul? And Paul tells us first, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. See, Paul has received reports, even while in prison in Rome, 
about the churches in and around Ephesus. And the first thing Paul has heard about these people for which he gives thanks is that they have faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul is grateful to God that these people are saved, having a genuine saving faith. Now, if you're new here, and I don't know if anybody is, but maybe someone's going to hear this from a distance, or maybe you need to hear it again. What is this saving faith about? There's a God who made us all. And he is a perfect, infinite, spiritual being who is one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the one true God. And all of us have done things to oppose or ignore God. And our failure to perfectly honor God in everything is called sin. When you fail to be as perfect as God, it is sin. Are any of you guilty of sin? Let's just go with yes on that, right? Sin is a thing that God will not tolerate. God must rightly judge sin, and the judgment of God is something that you and I could never survive. But God chose to save people from their sin. At just the right time, God the Father sent God the Son to earth, and Jesus, God the Son, took on human flesh. He lived a perfect human life, the only one who ever has, and Jesus willingly laid down his life dying as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for all the sins that God will ever forgive. And Jesus rose from the grave and is alive even right now today. And God has promised that all who come to Jesus in repentance and faith will be forgiven. Repentance means what? That you turn away from living for your sin and living as your own master. Repentance means that you accept or yield to the lordship of Jesus. And that's why Paul says that these folks had faith not just in Jesus. He says faith in the Lord Jesus. Because Jesus cannot be only Savior. He must also be Lord. There is no believing in Jesus that does not include Jesus, God the Son, as your Lord. And faith, faith is a belief in the facts about Jesus and a trust in Jesus. You believe Jesus is who he claimed to be. You believe Jesus did what he said that he did. But you also believe that Jesus and his finished work, that's your only way for you to be forgiven. Faith in Jesus is resting all of your hope for your entire eternity on Jesus and Jesus alone. So hear me, friends. Do you want the forgiveness of God? Do you want life with the Lord? Then turn from your sin, bow to Jesus as Lord, and entrust yourself to him. Ask him to forgive you, believing and repenting, and you will be saved. Does that sound true to you? Amen. Because that's the Bible's message. But Paul's not just thankful for the faith of the Ephesians. Paul adds, and your love toward all the saints. Paul is grateful to God for the Christian love of these people. 
The idea of Christians focusing on loving one another, does that sound new to you? Goodness, I hope not, right? Do you remember when we preached through 1 Peter? 1 Peter 1 verse 22 reads, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now that's a pretty clear command, isn't it? If you are a Christian, you are commanded by God to earnestly love fellow Christians. Any questions about that? Anybody looking for an exception? You don't get one. And Peter is quite clear that this love is to be expressed in your loving actions toward believers in the local church. 1 Peter 4 verses 8 to 10 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. John, in his writings, also repeats to us a constant reminder from God that if you have saving faith, one of the ways your saving faith is evident is if you love your fellow Christians. 1 John 3.23 reads, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. 1 John 4.21 says, And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 1 John 5.1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Do you hear that, Christians? Is there anything unclear about that command? It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? If you're a Christian, you're supposed to love other Christians. What is love? Love is a commitment to do others good. It is a commitment that is so strong that you will sacrifice your comforts for the sake of helping the one you love. Love includes affection, sweet feelings, but it is not only affection. And God makes it clear that saving faith will always result in a genuine Christ-like love of other believers. So Christians, ask yourself this question right now. Do I love my fellow Christians? Be careful here. Be careful. Don't limit this just to your family. Don't limit this to the people who are most like you. Do you love the church? Do you invest yourself in doing good, genuine God-honoring good to the people of God right here in our little church family? Honestly ask. Listen to me. Don't check out on me here. Honestly ask. Whom am I loving at PRC? How am I actually loving people and not just assuming, well, I must be loving people. How can I love others here 
more? How can I strengthen and display Christian love? Christians, if you cannot think of a single person in this church that you are committed to doing them good and you're taking action to do that good, there is a problem. Amen? It's funny, I get less, less hearty amens from that than from other happy things, right? Paul is thankful to God for things he's heard about these Christians and what Paul thanks God for in the Ephesians, you and I should want in our lives. Trust Jesus. And love believers. And you might say to me, but Travis, I'm having a hard time. My life is hard right now. I can't go love other people. Can't you? Can't you pray? Can't you give a word of kindness? Can't you write a note, send a text, do something to show your love for another? Is there nothing? I don't think so, folks. Trust Jesus. Love believers. Point two. We better get to another point. This one hurts. Pray for fellow believers with gratitude. Pray for fellow believers with gratitude. Verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. See, Paul had heard about the faith of the Ephesians. He had heard of their love for one another. And Paul made it clear that he regularly, gratefully prayed for these people. Now, y'all, is that not a simple point? Is there anything complicated about that? No, right? But this is a point that we need to make. Part of loving one another, as we saw, is important from the last point. Part of loving one another is praying for one another. James 5, verse 16 says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. As we spend time in each other's lives, as we love one another, as we hold one another accountable, as we help one another grow, as we show deep, sweet kindness to one another, we also pray. This is all simple. This is obvious, folks. Romans 8, 24, by the way, talking about Jesus, Paul tells us that Jesus, might have been 34 actually, I might have the wrong reference written down there. It's in Romans 8. The scripture tells us that Jesus speaks to the Father on our behalf. Now, Jesus talking to the Father is person of the Trinity, talking to other person of the Trinity, but you know what that is? What, what do you call it when someone goes to God the Father on your behalf asking for something good for you? You call that prayer, don't you? Jesus prays for us. And aren't we supposed to be like Jesus? Then we're supposed to pray for each other. Now we could go further. There's, you could do a whole sermon series on prayer. We could cite verse after verse after verse that beats you up about how much more you need to be praying. But dear friends, do you really need that right now? If you are a Christian, you need to be connected to and committed to the local church. And if you believe that God is real, if you believe God is active in your life, you talk to God. And faithful Christians do pray for one another. That's what faithful Christians do. So I would urge you to pray for other Christians with gratitude like we see Paul doing here. Thank God for your church family. And then do whatever you need to do to make sure that you take time in your life to remember your church family in in prayer. This is not complicated. Just pray. Just 
Talk to God. Make a list of names. Do whatever you've got to do. Ask God to bless fellow Christians. Ask God to grow people in their faith. Ask God to provide for each other's needs, physical and financial. Ask God to show sweet kindnesses. Pray for married folks to love each other better. Pray for parents to love their kids better. Pray that God will save lost family members. Talk to God. Ask God, God, do your glorious will in the lives of my fellow believers. It'll be good for them. It'll be good for you. Now, let's see what it is that Paul prays for the church. This is really the heart of the message. But let's see what Paul prays for the church. We find really what what is point three. Pray to know what God has given you. Pray to know what God has given you. Look at 17. Praise that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Pause. What Paul prays for the Ephesians is a prayer of life-changing wisdom. Paul is asking God to grant that the Ephesians have a genuine knowledge of something that goes really deep. So I want to make a couple quick observations about the prayer before we then will see three things that Paul actually prays that they will know. So first with me, notice that this prayer, even as Paul writes it, involves the whole trinity. I think this is so cool. Paul prays first that God the Father would do something. He calls him the Father of glory, by the way. God the Father is infinite in his glory, in his weightiness, in his worthiness of praise. And it's that glory, the glory of God that you were made for. It's that glory of God that will satisfy your soul forever. So this matters. And Paul calls the Father here the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have Father, now we have Son. Isn't that a great phrase, God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ? You can see both the genuine humanity and humility of Jesus. The Father is called his God. But you also see the deity and the majesty of Jesus because he calls him who? The Lord Jesus. Jesus is truly God and truly man. And then the prayer includes that God would grant the Ephesians the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, it really depends on what English translation of the Bible that you're using. The word spirit could have a capital S or a lowercase s. How many of you have a capital S in your Bible there? Yeah. Don't raise your hands at me. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I heard them. I did. How many of you have a lowercase s? Yes. A couple of you do. All right. Why is it done that way? Well, because translation here is hard. The word, the Greek word for spirit here, it's the same word whether it means the Holy Spirit of God or whether it means a spirit like an attitude or a mindset. We've got spirit, yes we do. We've got spirit, how about you? Or uh, there's a, the spirit of the age, that kind of spirit. It's possible that all Paul is asking for is a lowercase s, God, give them hearts open to wisdom and revelation, a spirit that receives wisdom and revelation. That's fine. But we've seen Paul repeatedly connect us to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in this chapter. I think that what Paul is doing here is capital S, 
and including the presence and working of the Holy Spirit in the believers right here. Last week we saw that the Spirit of God indwells and seals believers. He lives in us. He marks us as God's children. Well, Jesus also said that the Spirit of God would teach us. The Spirit of God would guide us. The Spirit of God would help us to understand the things of God. Sometime later, you can read John 14, 15 to 18, and all the way actually down to 26. It was the Holy Spirit of God who inspired all of the Bible. And now for us, that same Spirit of God lives in us and helps us to know the God who saved us through the Bible that he inspired. Now I want to be careful here. Because I don't want you to misconstrue the prayer that Paul is praying for the Ephesians. Paul's not saying, God, I want you to give them a Holy Spirit that they don't already have. That's not what he's praying. Neither is Paul praying that the Ephesians somehow get more of the Spirit of God than God already gave them. That is unbiblical thinking to think that there's more Holy Spirit you could have that you don't have. If you are in Christ, the Spirit of God indwells you and there's no portion of him that's larger or smaller. You could be more or less personally personally yielded to the will of God through the Spirit. You could be more or less open to do what God says in his word. But if you're a saved person... God will not give you more or less of the Spirit of God from time to time. You have the Spirit of God, period. So what is Paul praying regarding the Spirit? He prays that God, the Father of the Lord Jesus, will give the Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation of God. And the Spirit of God will enlighten the hearts of the Ephesians. Paul's not saying, I want you guys to have a new spirit or you need more spirit. He's not saying those things. Paul is asking that they would allow, that they would have the Spirit of God to give them wisdom, revelation, and enlightened hearts. So you got to ask yourself, what does it mean to have the eyes of your heart enlightened. Well, what's your heart? The heart here is not a reference to your blood pumping muscle, but it is a reference to the deepest part of your true being. Your intellect, your emotions, your very life is in your heart, metaphorically speaking. So what Paul is saying is that he wants these people to know some things about God, some things that are revealed by God's Spirit, and he wants them to know these things deep down. Paul wants more than surfacey head knowledge for these folks. He's praying that they'll have deep, life-changing, experiential knowledge. Let's talk about that kind of knowledge for a second. You ever getting something really good to eat on your plate? So much so that you want somebody else to take a bite of it? How many of you are food sharers? This is important for the upcoming potluck, by the way. Everybody take note of If you're not a food sharer, don't sit next to the people that are saying that that's them. Because they're going to say, you've got to try this. My dad used to do that all the time, man. We'd be at, dang, you got to have a bite of this, you know? And you did. You didn't have a choice if you were my dad's son. You just, you took the bite. 
Now, you tell me, what kind of food could be on your plate that you get a taste of? you like, oh my goodness. You turn to your spouse, you turn to your, your kids, you turn to your friend. You got to try this. What kind of food would it be? Dessert. Okay, a dessert of some sort. I'm going to go with that, right? That th- this wonderful, oh my word, dessert, right? You got to try this. Now, I want you to imagine the person sitting next to you saying that, oh, I know intellectually that's good food. Is that enough for you? Not if they haven't tasted it yet, it's not, right? You're like, nah, that's just frustrating. I want you to know. I want you to know from more than your brain. I want you to know deep down how good this is. Now, if you're not a foodie, not a food sharer, ever go to the Grand Canyon? Remember the first time you saw the ocean? If you've ever been there, let me ask you this question. Does a photograph really communicate to somebody else what the Grand Canyon's like? No. You know. Now, a picture can give somebody a type of knowledge of what you saw. There's no doubt about that. But they ain't going to know unless they're standing on the rim. They're not going to know unless their feet are in the waves. That's the knowledge we're talking about. Paul is praying that the triune God would grant to the Ephesians genuine, personal, experiential, heart-level knowledge of truths that will encourage them deeply. So now, as we get close to the end, we want to see the three things Paul prays that the Ephesians will know. Because guess what, guys? You and I need to know them too. So, look at 18 to 20. He's praying that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. What should you pray to know from God? Pray to know your hope, your value, and God's power. I would write those down. They could have been a whole sermon all by their little selves. Pray to know your hope, your value, and God's power. These are things that are already totally true in the lives of all believers. They're not things you've got to search for to get more of. You can't have less of them. They're just true things that you need to think about more. You need to be filled with. You need to realize. You need to know these with the eyes of your heart. So first, know your hope. Paul prays that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. This is really similar to what we studied last week about the return of Jesus and the ultimate joy of believers who are going to live eternally with the Lord. Our hope, Christians, is heaven. Now, a lot of people misdefine heaven, so I don't want to, you know, don't get a picture of clouds and harps and boredom. Our hope is eternal life, eternal joy, eternally living in the presence of God, becoming the very thing God made you to be forever. In the Bible, the word hope, it's not used the way many of us use the word today. Like, we might hope it doesn't rain. 
Jason might hope the Cowboys win. (laughs) I might hope somebody brought deviled eggs. Did you? Dashed. Someone might hope that your favorite appetizer or dessert came, right? When you use the word hope like that, it's a wish, right? I really hope this, I would like it if this were to occur. It's a desire that you're expressing, but you have no guarantee of it. But in scripture, when the word hope is used, it's a sure thing. It's something you don't have yet. But nothing, absolutely nothing, can keep you from getting your hope in Scripture. It's a done deal. You're just not experiencing it all yet. And that's what Paul's talking about here when he speaks of the the hope to which you have been called, Christian. He's saying that there is a sure thing ahead of every Christian that can never, no matter whatever, be lost. Even if you don't have heaven right now, eternal joy with the Lord is your sure hope. In Romans 8, Paul said, if God is for us, who could be against us? Indeed, Paul says, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Christians, that is the hope you're supposed to know. Know your hope. It is a sure thing can't be taken away. Heaven, eternal, perfect glory. Just study heaven. You'll get it, okay? Second, know your value. Know your value. Paul prays that you would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, last week when we talked about the issue of inheritances, we said that heaven is our inheritance. And boy, is that true. But I also mentioned to you last week that sometimes when God talks about inheritances, God says that the people of God are his inheritance. And while I think that in verses 11 to 14, the inheritance was that the saints have an inheritance in God, I think right here God might actually be telling us that the people of God are God's inheritance. In the Old Testament, God used to speak of Israel as a people for his own possession. 1 Samuel 12, 22, Jeremiah 13, 11. God called Israel as a nation his inheritance. Deuteronomy 4.20, Isaiah 19.25, Jeremiah 10.16. And while maybe it's not inheritance language per se, Jesus talks about the saved as a people the Father gives to the Son as a gift. Listen to John 6.37-40. I love this passage. Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Early in this passage, the first thing Paul wanted us to know was that we have hope in heaven with the Lord. 
And it's possible that the second phrase here about the riches of the glorious inheritance, it could still be pointing toward our hope of heaven, the glorious riches God gives us. But we should also realize God claims the people he saves as his very own inheritance, as his very own treasure. The people of God are a gift given from God the Father to God the Son, sometimes called the bride of Christ. And what you and I need to take from thinking about the people of God as God's inheritance is that God has set upon his church tremendous value. God cares about us. We matter to God. Now, we don't matter to God because we brought something unique and special to the table on our own. We matter because God chose us as a gift to himself. And this is a wonderful thing. Have you ever felt like you have no personal value? Have you ever felt like your life doesn't matter? Listen, Christian, you matter to God. You matter to God because God matters to God. And you are made in the image of God, saved by the Son of God, and promised as God's inheritance. God wants a people for himself, and you are part of that people if you're in Christ. And so your worth is set not in the things you own or how skilled or strong you are. Your worth is set in the fact that God chose you for himself. And finally, Paul prays the third thing, that you will know God's power. He describes it this way. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. God is almighty. There is no end to the power of God. And no matter what tries to challenge the rule of God in this world, no matter what may try to separate you from the love of God if you're in Christ, no matter what seems stronger, you need to know that the power of God toward us who believe is supreme. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in saving us and keeping us for God. Just think about that. How how much might Do you believe that the devil would have tried to put forward to keep Jesus in the grave or keep Jesus from ascending to heaven after his resurrection? You think the devil would have used as much power as he could on that? Was that power enough to bring Jesus out of the grave and get him to 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 heaven though? God's power in resurrecting and seating Christ in the heavenlies is above all powers because every evil force in the universe would have been stacked against Jesus and he walked right through them. That's the power that God says he used to save you and keep you and make you his inheritance. Now, Lord willing, we're going to talk more about that power of God in the next message from Ephesians. But for now, stop and see what God wants you to know deep down. In the eyes of your heart, Christians, God wants you to know that you have the hope of eternal life with Jesus. And how does that knowledge change you? Does it mean anything to you that you have the hope of eternity with Jesus? Mean it better. God wants you to know that the saved are God's 
precious inheritance, a gift from God the Father to the Son, and a glorifying of God the Father by God the Son. Does that matter to you to think of yourself and the church as part of as God's holy inheritance? It should change how you look at the church, shouldn't it? And God wants you to know his absolute sovereign power toward you. The God who saved you and promised you to his son is limitless in his might. How does that change your thinking if you understand it? Oh my goodness, it's huge. And notice that what Paul wants the Ephesians to know, he wants them to know something that is already theirs. Paul is not telling them to go get something new from God that God hasn't already given you. Paul is asking the Spirit of God to help the people of God know what God already has done and what God certainly is doing and what God certainly will do. They don't have to go searching for the Spirit of God. God has given you His Spirit and He wants your eyes of your heart enlightened to this truth. Now, as we close, Christians, I want you to think about what's God shown you today. God wants you to believe in Jesus and love the church. Part of loving the church is that you pray for fellow believers with gratitude. If you walk out of here, Christians, not thinking about how you could do something to love others in the body, you have missed part of the sermon, and it's a significant part. And God wants you to be a praying Christian giving thanks to God for your fellow believers in Christ. And God wants you to really know, deep down know, your hope, your value, and God's power. So you just ask yourself as you get ready to finish up here, how will you work toward these things? Don't just hear this stuff. You need to shape your life to make this be a part of your day-to-day. And if you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, I urge you, Come to Jesus to find God's mercy. You don't want to be under the judgment of God? Come and find grace in Jesus and you will have the hope and the power of a God who treasures you and that will sustain you into a glorious eternity. Come to Jesus before it's too late. Let's bow together and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the church. I thank you for the Savior. I pray that you will open the eyes of our hearts that we might know the hope you've given us, the glory of heaven, the value you've placed on your church, and the great power that you will use to accomplish all things in accord with your will. Let us know this so that we can't be shaken. Give us, give us courage and strength from this text today. And God, in all that you are, make us a people who will be pleasing to you. Forgive us, grow us, change us however you will. It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.